BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2010. And sweet girl, you do not have what it takes to be the Black Swan. everyone and welcome to unspooled. unspooled welcome to unspooled where we unspool famous films to see if they are truly classics or just remembered that way that voice you have just heard is paul Shear, actor comedian raconteur and that voice you just heard is amy nicholson who writes for the new york times but also has a lot of other great things about her too uh the other week you were making a great potato and you know we don't talk about your potato uh braising and baking no. skills I make about the best baked potato, to be honest. It's all about high, high, high heat. Higher than you think. Got to get it crunchy. Oh, really? All right. I like that. Um, You know, Amy, it's the holiday season, and we wouldn't be a show if we didn't have some holiday merch. Uh, We have an amazing set of playing cards that are adorned with some of the beautiful art that Kim Troxell has done for us over the last few years. Love you, Kim. It is truly a wonderful gift, and I think that this will be a welcome addition to any Unspooled fan, or really any movie fan, because, uh, you know, who wouldn't want famous movie posters with your face and my face on them? Some say it's defacing. We say it's art. (laughs) I just hope that people do some hardcore gambling with our faces. I would really like somebody to slap down our faces and have it win them five bucks. Well, head on over to Podswag. Check out the Unspooled store to get your... New limited edition of Unspooled Playing Cards, a perfect stocking stuffer for all your Unspooled or Paul and Amy fans. Oh, you know what I hope? I really hope somebody buys a deck of our cards and they're a magician and they use it to be like, pick a card, any card. And then when they give it back, they wind up like having like their name signed on the card that they picked. You know how that all goes? Yeah, yeah. I want to be a magic card. Please make me a magic card. Somebody out there, make me magic. Okay, well, they're going to be coming in. The uh, submissions are going to be flying in from magicians all over the world. Amy, I'm so excited to talk about Black Swan because I think a lot of the talk about this movie is about the themes and the hidden messages. 
But what people often seem to miss is the full body transformation that Natalie Portman did for this film. I mean, voice, body, everything. It just doesn't get talked about enough. And we will today. I'm all about it. But I also want to spend some time talking about the visual effects on top of that, because honestly, I am so mad that this didn't win the Oscar. I'm I'm mad that it even had to share a nomination space with like candy vomit films like the Alice in Wonderland. Ugh, no contest. But more importantly, we are going to break down some of the internet theories, some of the little subtle things that you didn't even see, and hopefully get to the bottom of the ending. What really happened? I think at the end of this, we'll give you three good options, and you can choose whatever you want. All right, so Amy, let's unspool it, spool it, spool it. The year is 2010, and Darren Aronofsky has had a roller coaster decade. Let's just talk about it in terms of cash. His first movie, Pie, was this $60,000 micro budget wonder that made him Sundance famous. His second film, Requiem for a Dream, is shot for $4.5 million, and that made him actually famous. But then his third film, The Fountain, had a major $35 million budget and wildly polarizing reviews that called it epic nonsense. For a filmmaker with his own very distinct, not mass appeal vision, at this moment, he's really the Goldilocks of Hollywood. This budget is too small. This budget is too big. And we have to figure out which budget is just right. So to recover his footing, he decides to go back to basics. He makes the stripped down $6 million film, The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. That's beloved. And then he follows it up with today's film, Black Swan, which at $13 million feels just about right. It's got a simple story that grips the audience and then wildly creative visuals that make it feel just lavish and inventive enough to be perhaps, and we'll get into this, the best Darren Aronofsky film. Perhaps. I mean, in this film, you have Natalie Portman playing Nina. She's this perfection-obsessed ballet dancer who is given the role of her literal dream, literal dream in the opening of the movie, as the fragile, innocent white swan in Swan Lake, a role she gets after the main ballerina, played by Winona Ryder, is forced to retire. The problem is Nina's predatory artistic director. He's played by Vincent Cassell, and he insists that Nina also play the black swan, who is this really gleeful, giddy seductress. And Nina would not know happy or sexy if it bit her in the ass, which it kind of does, because then Nina meets this party girl ballet dancer, Lily, that's Mila Kunis, and she takes her out to drink, and they do ecstasy, and she is responsible somehow in some real or dreamlike way for bringing Nina to climax and releasing her suppressed desires. And Black Swan is all about doubles. Aronofsky uses camera and digital tricks that blend Nina and Lily into the same person. It makes Nina split into two Ninas. He basically does everything he can do to confuse the audience and put us in the mindset of a dancer who is going insane. I mean, how many swans are there? Who was stabbed? Who wasn't? Who knows? (laughs) But when Black Swan was released on December 3rd, 2010, it did huge box office. And it went on to win Natalie Portman a Best Actress Oscar. So what was in the zeitgeist that opening weekend? It is a song that is so perfect, I gasped. It is a song about a girl who must destroy her competition and become, as Rihanna sings here, the only girl in the world. What an appropriate song for this movie. I love it. And, you know, Amy, before we get into Black Swan, I just want to talk about Black Swan 
In comparison to The Wrestler, besides it being his follow-up to The Wrestler, I think thematically, these movies are the same. And they are only different in the way that it focuses on someone in the beginning of their career and at the end of their career. But both of their careers are defined by destroying their body for an audience in different ways. And the endings are exactly the same. They do everything they can to entertain and then die. (laughs) You know, that sounds morbid, but when I think about it, to me, that is kind of the obsession of Darren Aronofsky's entire career. It's always about a person obsessed with a thing that is literally destroying them and their body, whether it's drugs, obsessions with chess, uh, overeating in his new movie, The Whale. He is about, you know, I guess this conflict between like your drive and your inner sense of what you need to do and what you need to accomplish. And also how that kills you. Like, are you going to kill yourself for your passion? Which I assume is preoccupies him for a, probably a very personal reason. I mean, even mother, you know, she's like, are you going to like give birth, raise self, be in your house? Or what are you going to give of yourself and your body and your time for this world that you are saying that you want to live in? And, and, and yet I agree with you that I think the wrestler and Black Swan above all of this are the most perfect pairing, you know, this most perfect pairing of his theme. I think that they feel most visually alike. I think that they feel most like, I don't know, monumental for the audience. That sounds like a strange word, but like what both of them have in common is that us in the audience, you know, we're used to seeing ballet performances from like a theater seat and we're used to seeing wrestling on TV, maybe in a seat if you're like very cool and you get to go to a wrestling match. I'm sure you've been to plenty of wrestling matches. I have. That's where I got COVID. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. Congrats. Yeah. That was where I got my whole family infected with COVID. We, we, we pretty much stayed out of the COVID wind tunnel until I brought them to a giant wrestling match at the forum and everyone in my family got COVID. <laughs> Wait, I thought I had the cooler COVID story because I got COVID when we were recording our podcast episode with Quentin Tarantino, but does a wrestling match beat me? Eh, it might. It's pretty close. I would imagine it's close. You didn't give it to Quentin Tarantino. If you gave COVID to Quentin Tarantino, then you might have the cooler COVID story. I brought my family pretty much unwillingly to a wrestling match and all got them COVID. So I feel like on multiple (laughs) levels, I really, uh, I'm taking the cake here. Also, to be clear, I did not catch COVID from Quentin Tarantino. He's innocent in this COVID world. But what I'm saying is like, these are two things that we're used to seeing as spectators, but what Aronofsky does that I think makes them so thrilling as movies is he takes his camera into this thing that we know and gets it closer to the action than we've ever seen. You know, he gets his camera to be like whirling around a ballet dancer. He gets his camera to be inside of a wrestling ring, which you, which you don't get to see. He, he really brings it right up into your face. Well, and makes you feel like what it's like. His films, I think, since Pi, are all about a person. And I think he captures the deteriorating mental state of somebody really well. Um, It's very hard, I think, to do voiceover in film. And what I think he's able to do is do voiceover through visuals. You start to feel the walls. You feel the repression. You feel emotionally the way this character feels. And I think this movie, you know, when we talk about this character that Natalie Portman plays, I think a lot of people say, oh, this... This movie tracks her descent into madness. I would argue that 
when this movie starts, she already isn't well. It, it is mentioned that she already had a breakdown. Like she is somebody who is trying to get back or trying to stabilize. And this is the thing that does bring her back down. I don't think that she starts off this film. Happy, stable, yes, cheerful. Yes, yes, yeah. all of yeah. those things. Yes, I think that she is is projecting that, but through his camera work and his visuals and the set design, we see exactly where she's at. And I think it's kind of fascinating. And to go to your point, I think the idea that he's wrestling with about the struggle of being a performer and destroying yourself for your career is something that we all wrestle with in the sense that, is it worth it? Is it worth it that, you know, I put in all this time, energy, I do all these things to my body. And at the end of the day, who am I doing it for? Am I doing it for the audience out there or am I doing it for myself and the people around me? And I think that as a director and a writer, I, I, I identify with that idea of, am I wasting time? Should I be doing something differently? Because there are so many obstacles, and especially when you're talking about these two films where they come in his career, he might be at that point of saying, is it worth it? Yeah, because it's that question in tandem with like the secondary question underneath that, which is like, what am I really striving for? Like, what is art? You know, is art being the person who executes everything flawlessly, like the way that Nina does? Or is art living in something, giving it emotional truth, even if the movements aren't perfect, the way that Lily is? And it feels like there's this thought running through here, you know, that can you be perfect? Is there is, is there a perfect synergy of both things? Is perfect impossible? Are you chasing something that doesn't exist? So it's like, I'm chasing this art that obsesses me. I'm giving up so many things. Am I giving up too much? Am I killing myself? And is it even what I'm doing even possible to achieve in the first place? And so we have that. And then we have two other layers. This is a seven-layer nacho dip <laughs> that kind of film. That none of the ballerinas are allowed to eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they would love it. Oh, that's sour cream oh, and cheese. I know. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. On the surface, we have the story of the black swan, right? That is what I think we are telling. Then beneath that, we are telling a story about the life of a ballerina and that world. And then beneath that, we're telling a story about arrested development 
And, you know, someone who is trapped in, you know, um, by an abusive parent and, and is trying to grow, you know, in, in many ways, it's a coming of age story, but it's sadder because it's of a 28 year old woman, you know? Uh, and then I think the, the final deepest layer is how do you live your life when there is some sort of psychosis, you know, when, you know, like how you can't even trust what your own, what your own eyes see. And I think that like, there's so many stories that you could really just pluck out and just watch one of those stories. But here, I think what makes this film so interesting and keeps the pace. And I think why it's such a big hit is because you can kind of choose your own focus. And it's a movie that if you can rewatch it, you see so much embedded in every scene. Yeah. And I appreciate that this is one of those movies that's so aware of the meta framework that it's creating, that it's it's not even like 10 minutes into the movie where they have Vincent Cassell's character be like, let me tell you the framework of the ballet that they're performing, which is also the framework of this entire movie and what is going to happen. We all know the story. Virginal girl, pure and sweet, trapped in the body of a swan. She desires freedom. But only true love can break the spell. Her wish is nearly granted in the form of a prince. But before he can declare his love, her lustful twin, the black swan, tricks and seduces him. Devastated, the white swan leaps off a cliff, killing herself, and in death, finds freedom. And you know, I think a lot of movies, when they do something that meta, to me, they come across like deadening a little bit. Like, okay, I see your game. I see like the the mousetrap game that you have set up and where all the marbles are going to roll. And I admire the execution and it's a nice trick. But I think that this film, and I say this as a person who is not, on the whole, a big Aronofsky fan. I mean, I don't know if you want to even get me started on The Whale, which just, Jesus Christ. But like, you know, I think he can be so on the nose, so clever, so blunt, so simplistic in a lot of his ideas. But in this case, I think he just nails it. I think he really nails like the emotional force as well as like the kind of narrative fun that he's having. I agree. And I think that this is why I would argue this might be the best Aronofsky film, because it, there's a sense of, and maybe I don't have the right term here, but like commercialism to it. Like this is still exciting. I think sometimes when he gets into those modes, it can become incredibly depressing. I, going back to Requiem for a Dream and even Pie, those are hard movies to watch. You want to exit those movies. And I think here... There's a, an engine that keeps the movie a little bit more alive. Like, I feel like by going to the opera, by seeing these scenes where she's out at a club and in the city itself, it feels bigger to me. Like, uh, an Aronofsky movie before this might just take place in that apartment with the mom, right? And we may never even leave the space. Or you know what I'm saying? It feels very confining. And I think that maybe opening up the space actually allows some more light and some some depth here. So you walk out still like traumatized, like, oh my God, that ending is, whoa, but you don't feel exhausted by it. And I feel like sometimes I feel exhausted by 
an Aronofsky movie. Like I was like, I need to leave now. I have to get I have to get out of here. I feel too caught and claustrophobic. Oh, good luck with the whale. The entire thing is in Brendan Fraser's apartment. See what I'm telling you? That's <laughs> what I'm telling you. Yeah, but this idea but- that like when you start off this movie. It's immediately, it captures you because it's her dream and you're in this world where it's like, what's real? What's not? What's big? It just feels alive. And I think, especially after The Wrestler, you are, it feels magical. This movie does feel magical, even though the ending is, quote unquote, a downer. But I I feel like there's an this magical thing here. It, it In many ways, I think the ending is actually happy. I'm going back to my Thelma and Louise point of view that, you know, this is someone who achieved everything they could achieve and they did it well. But again, at what cost? Fair. Well, okay. I don't know what I think about the ending yet in terms of even what happened, but I'm very okay. excited to get there. I think I should just confess right away that maybe part of why this film in particular has always had a hold on me is I have had a tricky relationship with Natalie Portman films for most of my life. And I'm going to try to explain this. Okay. Well, first I just want to say one thing before you get into this, Uh Amy, I, Natalie Portman used to go to my blockbuster. So I do have a personal relationship (laughs) with her. So I just want you to know that you're talking to someone who rented her multiple videos and have a connection, but okay, go ahead, you know, but just know that. What was her taste? Was she renting porkies? She had good taste. You know, she had good taste. I mean, it was at a certain point we didn't know it was actually her. And then we found out. We did some Googling. Uh, not Googling. There wasn't Googling there. We did some but Is she one of those people bit. who can hide under a hat? I wouldn't have guessed that. No, she, at the time I was working at Blockbuster, it was kind of like around uh, Beautiful Girls Professional time. And uh, gotcha. she had a, a different name that she would use. Her real name. Natalie Portman gotcha. is a, or Portman is a stage name. That must be around the time she gave up ballet because I kept reading like she did ballet until she was 13 and then that's around when she did Leon and then she kind of moved on Hmm. and did full-time acting. Interesting. But then she took two years to train for this. I mean, the reason why this movie is even made is because she paid for her own training and Aronofsky's like, I got to get this made because if I don't, like I've let down this person who's devoted two years of their lives to a film that I can't finance. Yeah. Okay, but that kind of plays into my complicated relationship with Natalie Portman as a viewer. Your best friend, Natalie Portman. Owner of the amazing (laughs) soccer team here in Los Angeles that I'm also a fan of. No, that is part of why I'm going to admit that this is all my problem. And I'm just confessing this in case there's anybody else out there listening who identifies with me on this problem, which might just be a specific problem to women of my generation, which is that when I was growing up, Natalie Portman was like the most perfect person in the world in a way that was just like really hard to deal with. It's oh, like I get that. You know, like you're 13, 14, feeling gawky, not sure of who you want to be in your life or what you're going to look like or like, oh, you've still got puppy fat or you're awkward or whatever. Your haircut's a mess. And it's like, It's fine when you look around and you're like, well, I guess there's, you know, a lot of us in the same boat, but then there's Natalie Portman and she's your age. And you're just like, God damn it. How is that person alive? And it's always been tough for me because of that. I don't know why. Like it's, it's like. Well, look, I mean, I think there's something really interesting about her because I think we also watched her transition from someone who was a little bit more awkward and young into someone who then became this 
a little bit more established actress. She's obviously very beautiful. She's incredibly smart. She goes to Harvard. She's one of those people who appears to be able to do it all, not well, marred by it. scandal, right? She is that's kind of it. this untouchable, perfect person. She's I totally get that. Perfect, because she was also a great actress even when she was young. Like, you know, I saw Leon and I saw beautiful girls and you're just like, man, like that girl is smart, beautiful, talented. Ah, like what do you do when there's like a presence like that in the world? Which I feel like is almost sort of the pressure that drives this film is, you know, this quest for perfection. It's like, her, it's like you almost it's almost like this movie is about the effort that it takes to be a Natalie Portman in the world, you know, because I this mean, is about a person yeah. who's kind of a lot like how I've always seen her, which I think is probably not true. But this is just how I've seen her. So I'm saying I'm, I, I feel like there are reasons to say that I am wrong. However, I have always seen her as like a perfectionist who has been all about the work and hadn't had a lot of life experience up until this moment, which is why the roles I've really liked her in tend to be like this one where she's like pressured to exist in a world of public view, like Jackie. I like Jackie a lot for the same reason too. Well, I think that, you know, this other thing that she has that hangs over her head potentially is the garden state problem. Right? Oh yeah. All right. Uh, now I am not going to slam on garden state. I know a lot of people like to, uh, but I, I saw that movie uh, when I was younger I was all in. I'm not going to retroactively go back and be like, I think it is trash. I'm just going to say, but I know that that performance angered a lot of people because she was this, was it the manic pixie dream girl? Like that idea is pretty much from. It was named after that in Elizabethtown. Yeah. You know, and it was like this idea of like, I'm going to put on headphones and you're going to listen to cool music. It was like, I think in many ways, Natalie Portman was also in a lot of roles that help broken men. Yeah. Right. Beautiful girls, Leon, the beginning of her career, you know, she's, she's doing that. And at a age where it's a little bit, I think if you look back at beautiful girls, Timothy Hutton's relationship with her is fine. Ish. Uh, I haven't you know, seen that movie as a grown up. I'm curious. I haven't seen it as a grown up either. And I loved it when I was a kid, but when I think back on it, I'm like I see issues. Uh, but, all of that together, I think, makes for a complicated relationship with her because she's also somebody that you really can't pin down, unlike someone like DiCaprio. And I'm going to put her on the same level as DiCaprio. I don't know why, but it fi- kind of feels right. I think that really besides Star Wars, she leans into more indie and interesting films for her entire career. Like she doesn't try to do anything where, you know, look, there are some bigger movies that she did. But Thor, yes, that's like after retirement. I feel like she's kind of retired now. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, maybe she's not. I, I or like it's sort of like yeah, yeah. she's got a kid to put through preschool, she's and I hear that's a nightmare. That check yeah. and God bless anyone who needs that check. Um, preschool, but, oh God, um, that kid is probably a fifth grader now. Of course, wow. probably. Ugh, but all I'm saying is, so old. She is somebody that went in a very different direction than most that you see in Hollywood. Like she really gravitated towards interesting and complex parts, you know, from her, you know, third movie is Heat. And again, it's like, did she pick Heat? Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, but uh, probably not. But I think that she stays on a track of working with very interesting directors and even the bigger budget movies that she does uh, are very interesting. Like you look at her career and you're like, oh, fuck yeah. I, I'm, I, I wouldn't make, I mean, she's making the right choices or she's making 
choices of really interesting choices across the board. I agree. And I would say that that also adds into why I feel a mixture of shame that my favorite Natalie Portman movies are the ones where it's so hard to be her. Mm. Like this one. You know, where it's like, oh, I want to see how much it sucks and that you have to pull feathers out of your back and your toenails are broken. Because, man, she just does everything right, it feels like, from afar. Absolutely. No, I mean, like, and this movie is also really interesting because I think maybe I'm putting energy to Natalie Portman that she doesn't have. It's because she also did Your Highness, and I want to give her credit for that. She's very funny in that movie. No, and she's done Hesher. She takes some shots. I mean, her video with Andy Samberg on SNL, remember that? Like her rap video. You know, she does. I mean, I love Annihilation. That's one of my, I think that might be my favorite Natalie Portman film. Maybe it's my favorite movie that she's in. I don't know. I really like this one too. Uh, But all that's to be said is there's something really interesting about this young girl living with her mom under the watchful eye of her mom, who clearly played by the Barbara Hershey, who is phenomenal. And without like, to your point, without giving too much exposition, without beating you over the head, we see this relationship. We see this world in which she's comes home to an apartment and these warped paintings of her are on the wall. That's what she's looking at. Right. And the whole movie is about like looking at herself. How do they appear? How do they feel? And when she's like masturbating for the first time, when she goes home after Vincent Cassell's like go and, you know, basically jerk off and she's doing it and she's finally able to like enjoy it. Then she turns and sees her mom, you know, sleeping in the chair. It's like this, her whole life that has is been under. That is such a horror movie scene. You're just like, ah! Oh, it's, it's so frightening, but it, it also lets you feel like, how could she be anything but when her mom is looking at her like that, giving her the grapefruit, kind of feeding into her, yeah, her problems, her but also anorexia breakfast. Good call. Yes. One poached egg and half a grapefruit, and like you hear her voice be like, "How pretty!" Like yeah. she's trying to be happy with a sad little breakfast. It's a very upsetting thing because she is in arrested development in her body. She's in, uh, you know, arrested development in her mental state. And that's the core of the movie is like, how can you play a complex character if you've not lived? And I can only imagine a child actor brings more to that discussion than anyone else. Because when you're cast as a child in these films, you are asked to do all these things, but you don't have that life experience. You couldn't have had that life experience. Like Leon, beautiful girl. Like there, so... I think there's something interesting that she does. Like she does try to go get that life experience. She does go to school. She does, you know, take herself out. But I do think in a weird way, only she could kind of tell this story or or bring to it a level of truthfulness that she probably lived it on some level with her because her parents are putting her into acting. I mean, any kid that's acting, their parents are putting them into it. doesn't make a difference how many times you say, oh, well, they wanted to do it. Well, you had to drive them there. You had to get them there. You had to say, yes, my kids want to do a lot of stuff. We don't do 90% of it. You know, so it like to me, what I'm saying is it could be, this is obviously much more heightened, I imagine, but it's there. Like, how can I live my life without these people watching me, seeing me, feeling me, wanting to sexualize me? And that's the other thing about her too. Like this whole movie is like, be sexual, be more sexual. You have to, you have to be sexual. You have to, you have to get to this part. And I think the things that I wrestle with in this movie is like, she should be more sexual. She's 28 years old, you know, in the sense that she shouldn't be a a child, but I also understand 
this idea of being like forced into, you know, like that kiss that she gets. There's a lot going on here, I think, about, you know, people being taken advantage of in this kind of world too and being messed with their minds. Even if she was fully mentally healthy, uh, it would be hard to contend with all of this. That's true because like her coach is, you know, on one level being like, you're actually really perfect at this part. You're perfect at the one thing, you know, you're perfect at the white swan, but then like tearing her down at the same bit, you know, like that scene where he's like, when I look at you, all I see is this white swan. Well, the truth is when I look at you, all I see is the white swan. Yes, you're beautiful, fearful, fragile, ideal casting. But the black swan, it's a hard fucking job to dance both. I can dance the black swan too. Really? In four years, every time you dance, I see you obsessed getting each and every move perfectly right, but I never see you lose yourself. Ever. All that discipline for what? Just want to be perfect. You what? Want to be perfect. <laughs> Perfection is not just about control. Yeah, and this is different than some of her other roles in a way that, like, let's go back to Beautiful Girls or even um, Garden State. She's fixing a man. Oh, this man is broken. She's fixing. And then here, the man isn't giving, isn't putting her on a pedestal. Like the man here is kind of putting her down and and she's being put down so much by everyone. Like she, she has not like no one, you know? And I think that that's a, I mean, again, just to see the differences of her performances. I, I like that too. Like she's actively going away from this thing that I think she has been positioned at for such, uh, you know, a large part of her career. No, that's true. I kind of get that. Like, like, you're right. I could see that at this point in her career, Natalie Portman feels like she's only been seen as the white swan to almost everybody in her movies that she's picked. Yeah. And in how people see her as like the good, smart girl who went to Harvard. You yeah. Know? And I, and like wanting to break out of that with like a role. Cause I think this is like, this comes out around the same time. I think like the same year roughly as like Your Highness. Those are like to me, the two like, I'm going to get weird things. <laughs> and like, and then. Well, you know, actually, Amy, I think that Black Swan also is a turning point in her career because well, that's what, what happens yeah. is, yeah, yeah, she does Black Swan and then it's, I'm still here, your highness, Thor, you know, she's just, there is this, I think, blending now where she's like, I can do something big, I can do something small, I could do weird, I could do, you know, doc, it, it's all over the spot. Yeah. Or she even did like that comedy, do you remember she did Friends with Benefits? Well, right no, it was wasn't it called time? No Strings Attached? Oh wait, I get them confused because this is yes, like a weird thing. Yes, they're the same thing, movie. Right? They're yes, the same movie. Is... They're both movies about like two girls having sex with like their friend with benefits. But that's why it's weird. Is like one of the movies is Natalie hooking up with Ashton Kutcher. Is right. that No Strings Attached? And that the is other no one strings, yes. is Mila Kunis, other co-star of Black Swan, hooking up with Justin Timberlake. And yep. why this is fascinating is because then. Ashton Kutcher winds up marrying Mila Kunis after this. And then in this movie, Mila is like grabbing the crotch and maybe hooking up with Benjamin Millipede, who will then marry Natalie. So it's like they're grabbing each other's future husband's crotches in these movies. Uh, look at this. It all comes together. And <laughs> that is once the true again, once again, 
who was at the table read and read a couple characters for No Strings Attached? Me. At you the were there? center. Yes, I was there as <laughs> Kevin Klein jumped up onto the table. Uh, it was awesome. That was one of the best things I've ever saw in my life, watching Kevin Klein just act the fuck out of a table read. Um, but um, <laughs> this movie is really interesting, too, because you talked about the idea of, well, yes, these are all the things that we know. These are all the, this is just the world and the problems of the world. But now, what about the problems of her character? And what is real? What is not real? And to me, this is where the movie gets a lot more fun to dissect. And, you know, you start to see this duality of who she is, who she wants to be. And we get to see this birth of a whole other person. And in a way, the way that in the dream, in the very beginning, we get to see her transform. Like, you know, she's spinning out of control and then turns into the black swan. This movie represents that, you know, in many ways and in way she, you know, her rage comes out at her mom. Finally, she's, you know, she's going to masturbate and do it to her own desire. She's going to have all these thoughts. She's just, she is spiraling out of control to become a new person. She is being reborn. And I think that maybe the fragile nature of this character means she couldn't handle the duality of that. She didn't have the capacity to be both sides, right? She almost had to kill one side to get there. I, I don't, that's- Does she literally stuff. kill herself? I'm on the fence. What do you mean? How were you on the fence? She definitely well, kills her. You don't think she's dead at the end of the movie? I mean, I'm torn. I mean, I know like- She's definitely in the hospital. She's bloody. She fades to white. But I also don't totally- now, okay, I'm, I feel like a mix of, like, literal and figurative on this. Okay. Like, like, I literally do not understand how she could dance if she's bleeding to death without, like, bleeding earlier. You know, like, I just, well, I'm just like, small how is that cut, possible? Uh, like, but, a small cut become a bigger cut. Maybe when you're doing those spins, you start to open the cut a little bit more. You know, no one notices it at first. I don't know. I think that she could do it. Maybe it was just I a do, deep plunge. Maybe. I mean, I do want to believe... That it is like one of the moments in the scene where you see that somebody else reacts to it. So it's like, you know, Vincent Cassell is like, oh, no, what did you do? Oh, my little princess. Which makes me think maybe it's true. I think he looks at her at the end and goes, you did it. You were perfect. When she goes, it was or I was perfect. I was like, he's like, yeah, you were. He gets it. He gets why she killed herself. I do think that he like, I don't think he's like in shock. I think he's like. It's like the like the uh, the football coach at the end of like a cheesy movie, like. You did it, kid. You did it. Like, you know, he, but doesn't I think he's he have slightly to worry proud about of her. Who's going to do it tomorrow? Yeah, he'll figure it out. He needed the opening <laughs> night to get the money. That's all. Just the opening night would have been good. If everyone talked about that, their theater would be pushed uh, to the brink. But I mean, I don't think that she stabbed Winona Ryder. No, I don't think she stabs Winona Ryder. Um, although it is funny, like when Mila Kunis talks about that scene where she stabs Mila, Mila talks about it as though it's a death. Even though I think she's maybe talking about it just in the terms of like getting in the head's mind, like head mind, the head mind to play a death. Yeah. I've never had to die. I've been raped. I've been shot at. I've blown up in a house, but I never died like on screen. So I'm really excited. Well, it's interesting that you that she says that because in my mind, she's killing 
this other person, this obstacle in her way, right? And I think a lot of that stuff is imagined. I don't think that Mila Kunis is hooking up with uh, the director. I think that that's imagined, but it gives her this reason. It gives her this person, this love-hate relationship, and she almost is sucking her power out of her. Like, she has to kill her to become her, but it's very much like Fight Club too, in that sense of, like, who is who and what's going on, because I do think that Mila Kunis is in real life, or the character that she plays in real life, is exactly that scene that we see probably like 20 minutes into the movie where she's kind of dancing around and and laughing and messing up and giving her E and going like, oh my gosh, your mom's weird. Like, I don't think that she has anything more going on than that. Yeah, and I mean, I do think that she's like the person who doesn't realize that she's completely disrupting Nina's life for a very long time. Like, there's that bit where Nina's getting presented as the new white swan, and like Mila Lily just like interrupts it by laughing. And I think that's kind of almost the perfect example of just like she's sabotaging this girl's life and doesn't actually realize she's doing it. We honor you. You will be greatly missed and never forgotten. But as we bid adieu to one star, we welcome another. We're opening our season with my new version of Swan Lake, taking the role of our new Swan Queen, the exquisite Nina Sayers. Because that, that's an accident. You're like, oh, whoops, I didn't realize. And like it, that, at that moment, if that character knew how much Natalie Portman was obsessing over her, she would be completely freaked out. But isn't this uh, the dilemma? Because Mila Kunis is just a 20-something-year-old woman who's just like, who gives a shit? Like, life is fun. Let's have a good time. Like, your mom's weird. Let's hang out in the bathroom. Like, she's not trying to sabotage. I don't think she's trying to sabotage her career. I just think that life comes easy to her. I think that we've all been surrounded by people that you look at them and go like, how do you manage? Because everything you do is so easy. And, but yet, and, and people love what you do. And when I have to do it, it's so hard, you know? And and I think that they're, and you get mad at these people and they are doing nothing to fuck with you. It's just the, their energy is something a little different. And, but because it's different, because she doesn't care about the ballet, because she hasn't given her life to that, because she does do drugs, because she does hook up with dudes, because she is living her life. Her life isn't just one show, one part being perfect. Like the only thing that Natalie Portman wants to do is be perfect. And Mila Kunis is like, I am full. I'm a huge person. And I think maybe this is the debate between the two characters. It's like, is it like better to live a life of Mila Kunis by not being perfect, by just kind of doing something that makes the audience have fun or you're laughing with them? Or is it better to be the perfectionist who every shot, it's like, is it to is it Michael Bay or is it Christopher Nolan? I mean, that's a very reductive way to put it because I think that they're both <laughs> masters of their craft. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? I was like, what? But I do think there is something about that, like the way that you can approach making something. Can I just relax? I mean, I like that you're likening it not just to like perfect and imperfect or perfect and emotional, that you're likening it to perfect and full. Because I think about yeah. that a lot sometimes, even just in the world of being a film critic, you know, because like I didn't grow up watching. Fi- I wasn't Natalie Portman renting videos from you when I was 13. Well, really? You know, I would, yeah. Well, there you go. You know, I mean, that, yeah, maybe there are some things. There are some things. But like, you know, there's like, I always feel like I'm still playing catch up as I think kind of deep down everybody does about movies you haven't seen yet. And you're like, oh, yes, 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 yes. Someday I will totally get around to seeing that film. And then, and then I try to think like, maybe 
as a critic, it is equally valid to live a full life and have life experiences and care about sports and care about politics and care about the World Cup, which is also sports. Yeah. And bring like your interest in the outside world into reviews rather than being a person who's like perfectly seeing everything and probably every night rents like nine movies from Thailand that I haven't seen yet. And this idea, too, you see these makings of lists and you see these ideas. We talk about this at the the beginning of the show is like, what is the best? What is the best? And what we found, I think, in the journey of this show and kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit, too, the episodes that most people listen to on the show are the ones that are Austin Powers and not Solaris. Right. And that doesn't mean that Solaris isn't amazing. And I love Solaris. But it also is like we are a mix of these things. Both things are worthy. Like, yes, Solaris is one of the best movies, but can't, uh, you know, can Home Alone be on that list as well? Like, why do we have to like delineate between what a popcorn movie is versus what an art house movie is? When you look at these lists of the best films of all time, very rarely do you see, like, look, the AFI, the, the sight and sound list. Is there a Marx Brothers movie on there? No. Is, you know, are there any comedy movies on there? I would argue maybe some satire, but no comedy. It's like, well, we're losing this part of ourselves and not to go down that path, but we are always wrestling with like, oh, like a serious film versus, well, that's not, we don't care about that. And this movie, I think also runs that line. This movie is a commercial success and a full art house movie. And I think that's really interesting. Like, he merged both sides of himself, I think, to make this movie. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. There is also here this idea of, do you have to be different people to succeed? Do you have to be able to access? I think it's more than her being able to access two sides. And it's much more about her trying to balance these two sides inside of herself. How can I be perfect, but also like alive? And when, and I think it's kind of, captured in that moment where she's dropped in the final performance, you know, cause she's, and she, that's not perfect, but she makes it work. Right. And that makes it more electrifying. She doesn't stop. It doesn't become like the show is over. And I feel like 
it's within those moments that we live and that we are attracted to in entertainment. Like where is that live wire? Where is that thing that feels different and feels exciting? And, and I think it is like the ability to be like, whenever I taught improv, I would say, and this is not a revolutionary line, but I would say it anyway, I would say like, learn all the rules here. So then when you're on stage, you can break them. Right. And I think that Natalie Portman can't do that. Like, or that's what, what broke her. She doesn't know how to, she did it once, but it truly killed her to do it. Like she doesn't know how to balance that. And I feel like part of the idea of being a performer or a performer that can continue on for years and years, because this is a performer at the beginning of her career is being able to balance these two sides, whether it's, if we're looking at the world of social media, like who am I on social media? Am I sharing too much? Am I sharing too little? Am I on social media? Am I not? Am I, and again, social media is just an example, but it's like, am I doing the popular movie? Am I doing the series? Am I not? You know, you going to this idea of, you know, everyone talks about the marvelification of these things. Oh, well, you're, if you're in a Marvel movie, you're not a movie star. You have to deal with all these dualities. Like life is dualities. And I think some people that we know are incredibly talented and they can't. I hear all of that. But what's fascinating is that this movie doesn't talk about it really. I think in terms of like full life, empty life, I think just keep talking about it in terms of evil. Like here, there's this evil force, says her, says her dancing coach. That evil force is pulling you that you can't mm -hmm. escape. That's just like <sighs> out of your control. So you, you're just, you sense it, you get aware of it more. It's taking me, it's taking me a little bit more desperate. Right. And you know, what I really kind of noticed, like in this watch of it, is how much Natalie Portman, while she's dancing in the earlier sequences, before she learns to let go, is really showing us what an almost great but not great dance performance is. The way she holds her face for almost all of this entire movie is so painful. Like it, it hurt to watch her hold her face like that. The way she's like holding her eyebrows all knit up tight, the way her mouth looks so tense. It's like, you almost feel like you see all of the, all of the muscles in her neck kind of just clenched all the time. She manages to hold herself in a way where you feel so stiff and you feel so pent up and miserable. Like when she's dancing, when she's even at home, she doesn't really let herself physically relax. And yeah, they like I think she's really great at building that contrast then between like her and and Mila in that way. You know, you just kind of feel it, even if you're not a dancing critic, of, you know, a dance professional who, you know, can articulate why one performance is better than another or one performance is different than another. Just even in how she holds her mouth makes you understand it. Absolutely. It's like, you can enjoy watching a show like American Idol and not know when they're off pitch, or at least I don't know. Like, you know, when, you know, you hear a professional, like there, there is something about this movie that does, they do do a good job of letting you know what works, what's not working in that way. You're right. Cause there can be like so much confusion about that. I mean, this movie, I feel like in particular was all about confusion, not even just like watching the movie, like who's dancing? Is it her? Is it Lily? What's going on? But then like the extra layer of people talking about the movie after it was made and like, who did that dancing? Was it Natalie? Was it her body double? Was it that other dancer, Sarah Lane? There was a whole controversy about that where like the ballet dancer who did a lot, like pretty much all of her full, I don't know if all of her full body shots, but a lot of her full body shots was like 
I have been shut out of this because people want to pretend that Natalie did all of the dancing. Full body shots with actual dancing is me, and that's why they hired me. It's your body, mm -hmm. your feet. Mm -hmm. Sarah gave a small interview to Glamour magazine about her role in the film, entitled The Real Black Swan. She says she got a call from one of the film's producers. And what did he say to you? He asked if I would please not do any more interviews until after the Oscars, because it, it was bad for Natalie's image. And the Oscar goes to Natalie Portman, Black Swan. They were trying to create this, you know, image, you know, this facade, really, that Natalie had done something extraordinary, something that's pretty much impossible. To, Which um, is to become? To become a professional ballerina in a year and a half. And your version can still be correct? It's possible if, like I said, if you're counting the close-ups of her face as actual dancing shots. But I don't call close-ups of her face actual dancing. It to me that almost feels like it adds another black swan layer on it. It's like, here's Natalie Portman performing as the black swan being told her black swan is still not black swanny enough. And like, will she ever measure up to being the full black swan who is the black swan? And then like everybody coming to Natalie's sort of like defense, I guess, and being like, no, she did like 80% of the dancing. She did 85% of the dancing. It's all hers. She studied for, you know, five hours a day. She worked for six months on this. Like, this is Natalie. And it's funny, like there's an interview that she gives where Natalie Portman is talking about her real dancing. And I kind of want to play it half because, you know, it's just Natalie talking about her training, but also half because it, it made me remember how much the voice of her character in this movie is not Natalie Portman's voice, that she's making herself talk in that kind of high pitched, strained little baby voice and that her actual voice is so much deeper. We did all these exercises that... I would never have thought of like toe exercises to like strengthen my metatarsals because there's muscles that you get in places that normal people don't have from, you know, doing point for years and years and years. So things like that, I think, really protected me. I mean, that's kind of why I think of this as just such a full body performance. Like this is just this isn't like a movie star performance where Julia Roberts just comes in and she grins and she's being the full Julia Roberts. Like this is just like kind of a, a top down reconstruction of Natalie Portman of an exaggerated version of Natalie Portman. It's like she built her own body double and then performed it is how I see it. I this totally agree. And again, looking at her other work, this is a character that we've never, or at least my familiarity at this point that I'd never really seen her play before. And it's a, it's, you see the fragility of her in so many ways, you know, and, and you see it in that moment where she's even getting that massage, you know, and that I feel like that masseuse was a real masseuse and she was getting Ugh. an actual real massage there. But it's like, you see how her body has been totally transformed, everything about it. And I think that is truly something people talk often about, like, oh, you gained weight, you lost weight for a part. And I think what you're talking about here is she transformed and held her body in such a way. It's not, yes, she lost weight for it. Sure. But yeah, there's, there's so, so much body work that. going on here. Yeah. Like so much body work going on with her, especially knowing who she is. Like if this is her first performance, I think you would be shocked to be like, oh my God, that's Natalie Portman. Like, you know, because we've already seen her uh, in different ways. Um, I mean, to me, one of the smartest details in this is just the sound designing work and how they add the creaks of her body. So it's like you hear and feel it and it sounds like a horror film all the way through. 
I mean, that just attention to detail in the sound is so creepy. And it just builds this like tone. You know, you're hearing, it's layered. It's like as layered as the movie itself. You know, you're hearing one sound that shouldn't be there over other sounds. You're on the subway, but you're hearing the sound of like bird wings rustling. It's it's just so thick and creepy. It makes me feel like you kind of walked into a forest and now you're covered in moss and also birds are pecking at you. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, even just thinking about that, about like nature and horror makes me think about how much I personally hate swans and the idea of a movie about swans or being surrounded by swans. Turning is very into close. a swan? Ugh. I mean, this ballet itself, Swan Lake, it's kind of like... A werewolf story. You know, it's about a girl who is a swan by day and a human by night. So I guess instead of like a nighttime thing, like a a total werewolf, she's like a a day swan. But yeah, it's about body change. And then like adding on to that, the fact that swans are by far the worst bird. I mean, they're a bad bird. Wow, by far. Okay. Oh my God. Yeah. I I hate swans. I say this as a person who loves birds. Like I used to think my spirit animal was a duck. And now I think my spirit animal is closer to a grackle. But like swans are just nightmares. Like, have you ever heard a swan hiss? I mean, just listen to this. That is like the sound of the devil. Like this one time I was um, on this tiny. Okay. So like in Norway, people get tiny islands that are like very big and they don't have any electricity and they build little houses on them. So it's like a private island with like one house on it, but it's just sort of nice and rustic. I was on one of those once um, for the summer with like somebody and there was a swan who like stalked our house. And every morning when we'd get up to jump into the lake to take a shower, this motherfucking swan would like creep up behind us and then just do that hiss that like, (sighs) and it would make me scream every single time because it sounds like Satan just crept up behind you. And swans can get big, like when they stand up on their legs and kind of put their chest up and then put their neck up, they can be... You know, up to your shoulder, at least. And they are threatening and they have like a big old mouth. I mean, here's here's two swans hissing. Two swans hissing. All right. Well, now, Amy, I, I don't want to bring this up. This is actually very uncomfortable for me. But actually, um, you know, I actually rented some videos to a swan at Blockbuster Video. You, and this is and when you're talking about this. I really bet they're is. all snuff videos. That's the kind of uh, video a swan would like. I, I do want to talk to you about some interesting theories about this movie, too, because there's a lot online. You could go. I remember watching this film in Lincoln Center in New York City. And then and it was like, I love that the Internet existed because I could go on there and read all these theories. And I wanted to know if you uh had some thoughts about them. Do you believe the theory that Nina might have been sexually abused by her mother? Mm, No, not really, no. Okay, because there are two scenes from Nina's point of view that hint at this theory. When Erica is in Nina's bedroom, she gives a suspicious smirk when saying, are you ready? And it's revealed Lily actually never slept over in the lesbian scene. And Lily called Nina sweet girl, the same words that Erica uses. And Lily's face transforms into herself and her mother, causing her to freak out. That's that's the reason for the theory. When do they think it's her mother? Because I, I that, am very yeah. confused about the face transformations in this movie, too. And I was wondering something similar. I, I thought it was during the scene where the oral sex scene, right? I mean, that's where I saw it. 
Okay. All right. When I saw this movie for the first time, like in a theater, you couldn't pause it. But in this watch, I could pause it. So I was pausing it because you do see that weird fit. It's kind of like subliminal, like The Exorcist, right? You know how like in The Exorcist, there's like tiny little devil flashes everywhere. I like paused it and it is a face that I don't recognize. It's not the mom's face. Um, It doesn't look like Natalie Portman's face. It's definitely not Mia's face. I don't know whose face it is. It's really weird. And like, well, I maybe tried to even do the some... blending or blurring of the faces, right? I tried to do some Googling and there's a theory that maybe it's like if you morph Natalie's face and Mia's face, but it doesn't, I don't see either of them completely in it. I was thinking maybe it's like one of the body doubles they had. Like, cause there's, you know, not only Sarah Lane, whose voice we heard, who kind of looks like that. There's also like Kimberly Prosa, another body double. And she also kind of looks like that. But it doesn't look like anybody recognizable in the film. There's too many brunettes in this movie, for one thing. Everybody's a brunette. I can't tell anybody apart. But like, that's also the point. But like, my goodness. Like, I... I First you come after Portman. Then you come after Swans. Now you go after <laughs> brunettes. My God, Amy. This movie really is a triggering <laughs> film for you. And you came off after Aronofsky as well. My yeah. gosh. Uh, but like, who is that face? Like, okay. Have you seen a still is, of this face? Do you know that? Have you seen a still? I have. I know exactly what okay. you're talking about. Yeah. I, I think there's a part of me that goes into this larger part of the movie. Like, if I think it's very well known that pretty much in every frame of this film, there's a mirror of some kind, a reflective surface of some kind, right? Except for the part at the end when... Um, she goes and becomes, you know, this, the full black swan. Um, Cause like the dark side is kind of taken over. And I think that like this idea of like this image of you is like this birth and, and you know, and this kind of like transformation, who are you going to become? Are you going to become your mother? Or are you going to become your, are you going to become Mila Kunis? So I, I disagree with the sexual abuse theory because I think actually what's at play is a lot sadder and, oddly more interesting. And I, and then to go into this idea of like her being birthed, then we would have to explore the ending where I think, like I said, that she dies, but you know, I should take it from the actress who says she did not die. I mean, Natalie Portman says she did not die. And there's something here. Basically, Aronofsky put the blood at the end in a place that looked like it could be a period like period blood. And Natalie Portman was like, I, I'm uncomfortable with that. And he's like, no, no, I'm putting that there because this is when you become a woman. Um, and this idea of like, she killed the little girl to become a woman. And is there something about, you know, when you look at gymnasts and stuff like that, maybe she had, she hadn't had her period yet. And this is like part of that also. I mean, could that be the ending that she is, that her ending is she became a woman? Yeah, I don't love that theory either though. Because it's yeah. like she said that she has had sex before. No way. She, but she says she has. She you think did she's it. lying? Yes. I don't think she's lying. Yes. You think she's lying? Yes. So you are siding right here. You're siding with Cassell right here. David, can I ask you a question? Honestly, would you fuck that girl? No. No one would. No, she's not going out. I think that this is a person who had a nervous breakdown. She came out of a facility. She's back in with her mom. She's in her childhood bedroom. She is a child. She, she is, is a, a ch child. But I do think she probably had some boring boyfriend when she was 22 or something. Mm, I don't see this person being able to have that conversation. I don't see anything about her that is able to even communicate in a way that's not about 
what she's doing. There's no life in her besides her work until Mila, Mila Kunis comes in. Oh, can we just like give a little shout out for Mila Kunis and the way her character flirts? I don't know about that. Oh, sure you will. You just gotta let him lick your pussy. Cheeseburger, extra bloody. Mmm, that's a shame. Let me know if that's juicy enough for you. Oh, I will. You got enough cheese? No, but you do. Do you have enough cheese, Paul? I got enough cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. I love that moment. And I love that we get to see a little uh, Sebastian Stan in there. Uh, mm-hmm. Young Sebastian Stan. Um, but, you know, this is a movie that also, when you look at the production of it, you know, again, we think of this movie as, what would we say? The budget was $13 million for yeah. this? You know, you think that that's actually a lot of money. And it really, it's it really, really wasn't. Yeah. It, you know, for what they were trying to do and how they did it. How um, many dancers do you see on screen? How big this feels? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, they first of all, they they did some cool things. Like they shot the uh the black swan on Super 16, so it didn't look glossy, you know. Um, but did you hear the story about when Natalie Portman got hurt? No. So basically, you know, he wanted to make the movie for 30 million, got 13. Um, and during the filming, Natalie Portman dislocated a rib. And they're like, well, we can't afford a medic for you. And she's like, well, I still need medical attention. She's like, you could take away my trailer if you can make like a room for a the for a medic for me. And they did. They took away her trailer to give her a medic. And that was it. Like she didn't have a trailer. Like, so also like, you know, Aronofsky's playing mind games with them. They're taking away her. Like that trailer is a crazy balancing act. Cause at a certain point you'd think like, Maybe Nellie Portman should have just hired her doctor and kept her trailer. But like Aronofsky tried to pit Nellie Portman and Mila Kunis against each other by like texting them and like trying to play favorites. But they were oh, actually God. friends. So yeah, they it didn't, like, it didn't work. Yeah. It was Natalie's idea to hire Mila Kunis in the first place. You know, so I, I think that like some of that Ugh. stuff worked, but it was, I think there were some things in this that also was keeping a frenetic pace to it or like uh, everyone a little bit on edge as well. Can I tell you one of the reasons why I am, by just habit, annoyed with Darren Aronofsky? Sure. As much as I love this film. It just, like, it finally calcified for me in a way that I have been unable to shake after I saw Mother. You know, it was, like, the movie that he made with Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, um, of course. And, you know, he was, like, dating Jennifer Lawrence at the time. And I don't, I actually kind of like Mother, you know? Um, but, like, Mother showed with a Q&A with him at the end of it, like a video Q&A with Darren Aronofsky. And so at this Q&A where he's talking about Mother, he goes on and on about what a talent Javier Bardem is, how wonderful he is as an actor, how responsive, how clever, blah, 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 blah. Oh, he's brilliant, he's brilliant, he's brilliant. And then he finally comes around to talking about Jennifer Lawrence, and he just goes, she takes good direction. And I was like, oh, you did not just say that. You did not just say that, not only about the woman you were dating, but like a talented actress, a very talented actress. You did not just write her off as somebody who listens to you. I know. Anyway, I've been very mad at him since that, and I haven't let it go. Well, I mean, I know, I know. It, it, it's a very, like, uh, it's a tricky, it's tricky, right? Because it's like, I think that for this person to capture this stuff that he does, which is an intensely emotional, uh, destructive mind and wrestling with so many things it's like i feel like he was maybe even threatened by her performance overtaking his work 
you know, in a weird way. Because at that point, that. Jennifer Which Lawrence was happened. the, yeah, yeah, she was the person. And so I, I could see the jealousy of that as well. You know, it, it's a very, yeah. um, there's so much in a way, things, yeah. yeah, that's almost echoed here because like there's that whole dynamic between, you know, Vincent Cassell and Winona Ryder, you know, between like the creator and between his star and like this complicated relationship that we get these little glimpses of. And one of the tiny things you hear is that his very first production, she was the star of, which makes you think when that moment happened, she was the actual star and he was kind of the nobody rising up yeah. and that her stardom starring in his thing made his career you know and now he's kicking her to the curb and there's that little whiff of like she made you and you will now you're now destroying her in that dynamic that i think is really interesting i totally agree i mean and that and that is i think this business you know and and everybody's business is like you have your moment to shine and then when it's gone it's gone and yeah you know and that and that's a and again so you ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it to be perfect because it will be gone in just a little bit of time? And to you be know, honest, and, yeah. yeah. Like you go all the way back to the very beginning of the story of Swan Lake even being performed, you know, like back in Russia in like the 1870s. And, you know, the very first dancer who was ever cast to play like the lead character of Odette, she was fired right before the first performance because this rich government man had given her jewelry. And then he got really mad because she sold the jewelry and married somebody else. And so he was like, I gave her jewelry. She should only be having sex with me. And so she got fired from opening up, you know, Swan Lake and being part of like ballet history. And that that idea of like sexual favors and men pulling strings and women uh, like getting roles or not, depending on who they have sex with, goes to the very, very beginning of this dance. Which, by the way, it was like not even a hit for the first 70 years, basically, oh, wow. that it was on. It was kind of like a trifle that just like never really went away. I feel like this is the movie that probably is the one that most people can agree if you're going to pop on a Darren Aronofsky movie just for a light night, you know, with the kids, grab out some popcorn. This is going to be the one. I mean, I think this movie just makes the smartest decisions all the way throughout. Like, I love the costuming in this movie. Because not only is, you know, of course, like the swan makeup and the whole look of that and all and her whole costume uh, iconic, but what I really admire is the practical costuming in this, how much you see like the giant sweats, people wearing Uggs with their ballet costumes. Like there's a, there's a grounding of it where I like believe that this is a true ballet world because it feels like they actually looked what, at what ballet dancers do and wear. Right. And so I love that it's so smart in that way. Like it feels more real to me than... That that realness of it, I think, allows it to go big and allows it to go crazy. And I think it has, like, honestly, the best visual effects. It's my example of what visual effects should be. You know, that there's so much work in here and it's so detailed and it's so subtle. And every little thing they do adds to it. You know, like when they're in the dance scene and like the red strobe is flashing, every single freeze frame of that dance scene has something added to it visually, visually. You know, there's like Vincent Cassell in the background, magically there. She's in the background as a black swan. Rothbart, you know, the big like feathery guy, he's there. Suddenly there's Winona. Suddenly there's like dozens of Natalies. It's so condensed. Everything that they're doing with like the mirror work and the doubles and the trading faces out back and forth. It is so sophisticated and so smooth that it kind of kills me 
that this film at the Oscars was not nominated for best visual effects. Like to me, that's just sort of like an example of how people don't get that category right. Well, but that to me, I think what's, I think in a weird way, it is the biggest compliment. But when you're surrounded by a bunch of professionals, it is the biggest insult, right? right? Because it's sort of like the movie makes you uneasy. And I don't think that until, it's like what you said about The Exorcist. There's all these little symbols hidden within it, but they're not there to, they're not trying to call attention to it. And with this movie, I feel like, I'm like, wait, what did I, what, what? Like, it's like, it keeps you as uneasy as she is. From the moment you see her staring forward into the uh, subway uh, window, right? That version of her, like that murky version of her, you know, and you see like who she wants to be, like the Mila Kunis, like, was that, you know, creation of her own head? Was that really, you know, like you just, this version, like everything is so subtle that I think it overall makes you feel like, oh, the movie is doing this, but it's also be you're being manipulated digitally or, you know, by the film as well. Yeah, all of the subtle work with like mirrors and reflections. The mirrors were an obvious uh, challenge, you know, uh, and also uh, they were always going to be a big part of the film because um, first and foremost is because mirrors are you know, omnipresent in the ballet world. Ba- ballet dancers are constantly examining themselves in mirrors, you know, looking at their line, looking at how they, you know, move. And then it became about um, how to, you know, take that sort of cliche mirror gag, which you've seen in, in so many films. It's one of the earliest horror gags, you know, and, and try to do something new with it and try to make it, you know, more compelling and more different and more freaky. And then adding on to it, like, I think a really great layer of performance, which is, you know, when like Natalie comes out of the bathroom and looks in the mirror and the word whore is there, he had Natalie be the person who wrote the word whore. So that I think as an actor, she would know that in character, she was doing that to herself. She was judging herself and making herself go crazy. So it's not even like having some prop person write whore and then having her come out and react to it. Like he's really putting her in that full mindset of it. And going back to your story about, uh, you know, how he treated Jennifer Lawrence, do you feel like he's a person that tortures himself and the only way that he can really connect with somebody else is by torturing them? I mean, I don't know, but I do feel like if you look at your his body of work, self-torture is the theme. So he can't, right. I can't imagine that he sleeps peacefully and feels calm when he wakes up in the morning. I don't know, because he's also one of those guys that when you see him yeah. speak, he is lighter than I think. Like, yeah. I'm always expecting Darren Aronofsky to be like a real, like, huh, well, I just think that, and he seems so lovely. And every time I've had experiences, like, I feel like, and I may, this might be uh, not true, but I don't think it is. Like, I feel like Darren Aronofsky is like, oh yeah, I watched that show on VH1. Like, it's like, he's not a snob. Like, you know, he's just like, sort of like, likes all this different stuff. and And maybe it's just... In the moment, he is, but I think it's interesting for the work that he creates, he feels lighter than the work. That's fair. Does he watch Real Housewives to stop thinking about his own destruction? Or or is it because he actually doesn't think about his own destruction? It's just in his movies. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe that's the way he exercises those demons for himself. Maybe, maybe. But that said, I wonder how competitive he is that, you know, instead of Black Swan winning best effects, which it should have. You know, it went to Inception, which I will say is hard to argue. Astounding effects, very big. Okay, I get it. But then like, I feel like it should have gotten best film editing too, as much as I admire the social network. I feel like it should have gotten at least a nomination for best costume design, which it didn't. 
And really the most I can say to explain why this Oscars was so screwy is this is actually 2010, one of the most screwiest Oscars of all time. Do you remember why? Because here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, your hosts for the evening, James Franco and Anne Hathaway. This is actually happening. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the 83rd Annual Academy Awards. Anne, I must say, you look so beautiful and so hip. Oh, thank you, James. Yeah. You look very appealing to a younger demographic thank as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Amy, I don't want to upset you. <laughs> I've worked with both of those actors uh, in different films, and, you know, they're very close personal friends of mine. Again, ripping on Anne Hathaway, which I work with on Bride Wars, and James Franco, who directed me oh, Disaster come, come, Artist. Oh, come, 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 I love Anne Hathaway. My heart breaks for Anne Hathaway, because as low as his energy got, she was like, I have to rescue this. And my heart really went out to her. And, and I will say, also, I actually admire the 2010 Oscars because to me it was a rare Oscar year in that a lot of the films that were nominated actually made a fair amount of money. Like Black Swan, Black Swan I think made over $300 million, which is amazing. Like a lot of our Oscar top 10 movies that go up, really top nine, are kind of like, what? Huh? Oh, I haven't heard that. But this year it was like King's Speech and True Grit and Inception and Social Network and The Blind Side. Even like 127 Hours, that made money. And it was like a year where actually Oscar films and audience pleasers kind of went hand in hand. And I we need so much more of that because I feel like right now it's just so segmented into movies people see and movies that get awards. That is interesting because I wouldn't say that any of those directors sold out and I wouldn't say they've made anything that's unlike what they would normally make. It just happens to be like all those movies you mentioned are movies that have a major commercial theme running next to an incredibly personal story. Yeah. It's a great lesson to learn. You know, when people go, oh, well, they don't make these types of movies anymore. They don't make, you know, this, this argument, the Marvelization, blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. But it's like, I do think it's like, oh, well, that may be the way to do it. Like, what are, what is the way that you can... Do both. Yeah. What's I your joker? Like it has to be either or. Like, if our landscape of movies right now had a ton more $13 million black swans, amazing. I would love right. that. You know, I think that would be a really healthy film industry for us. But we'll I see. totally agree. But, anyways, yes, I mean, I think that there should not be this giant gap between awards movies and movies people want to see. And a lot of critics really loved watching Black Swan too, although there were, of course, some critics who didn't, and you might have guessed that one of them is Rex Reed. And Rex uh, Reed course. said, <clears throat> This exercise in hysteria is so over the top that you do not know whether to scream or laugh. The big problem is Darren Aronofsky, whose corny vision of madness is more hilarious than scary. He's jerry-built an absurd Freudian nightmare that is more wet dream than bad dream with all the subtlety of a chainsaw. And my beloved Kenneth Turan kind of built on that, and he, he called the movie High Art Trash, a kind of when Tutu goes psycho. And then he said, expecting subtlety from a Darren Aronofsky film is like expecting Pixar to announce a slasher movie. Not in this lifetime. Uh, and so, you know, those that's the critical response. But part of the response I thought would be really interesting is the response of ballet dancers themselves. In The Guardian did a piece where they interviewed ballet dancers for the Royal Ballet and asked them what they thought and they were mixed to negative. Um, ballet Dancer 1. This is a very lazy movie featuring every ballet cliche going. 
If you want to look at the dark side of ballet, do it properly. Don't just give us shots of a ballerina vomiting. The only people who looked like they were having a good time were the ones having sex. Another ballerina said, the one cliche they didn't go for was the bitching. I thought there would be much more bitching. I thought there would be dancers pushing each other down the stairs. And then an artistic director, who would be the Vincent Casale of the piece, said, I hated the ballet director. That scene where he comes into the class and starts telling the story of Swan Lake and then he taps the shoulders of the dancers he does not want to use. If I tried that, my company would tackle me to the ground and send me to the hospital. The most realistic character was Lily, who smokes and has fun. <laughs> These are so dumb. Uh, but I mean, look, God bless. Um, <laughs> look, they have a hard life. We have learned that ballet dancers have a very hard life. Well, you know, Amy, we've spent so much time talking about special effects. And I think whenever you talk about special effects, you got to mention a movie that everyone saw, but I think no one remembers. And that is Avatar. And that is our next film to get you ready for Way of Water and the next three James Cameron movies that will be coming out. Uh, we are going to go back to the land of the Navi in, um, in a move that I'm not thrilled about, honestly. I'm not thrilled, but I'm actually open because I had a few friends who went to go see the re-release and they said it was quite beautiful and great. Uh, but I'm curious to see how Avatar holds up on my home screen without the 3D uh, and to see if this movie is worth a land at Animal Kingdom, is worth James Cameron basically s- siloing his career for a decade and a half, maybe, to make these films, you know, by the time the sixth one's out. I, I, I don't know if this movie is worth it. So I'm going in there going like, I don't know if I want to watch these Navi again, but I'm willing to be open-minded to it. I appreciate that you're doing this for us. Thank you. Exactly. And I'll tell you this much. Uh, the sight and sound list, the AFI list, Avatar is not getting on that list. I guarantee it. Um, I think Terminator 2 has a better shot than Avatar. Anyway, uh, take a listen to the trailer and the majestic score behind it, because there's not that much talking. You Jake Sully? I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world be making a difference. I became a Marine for the hardship. I told myself I can pass any test a man can pass. All I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. You should see your faces. We have an indigenous population called the Navi. They are very hard to kill. This is why we're here. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. Their village happens to be resting on the richest deposit and they need to relocate. Those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. All right, you can get Avatar wherever you get your films streaming. If you like listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy. Kim Troxell does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up-to-the-minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive 
unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. And check out the official API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list, at unspooledpod.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last